Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Stick up for what you know, what you can evidence-base. Don't be scared to challenge authority, but recognise it's not going to get you liked. You'll have to develop a very thick skin. Today I'm talking to Professor Jerry Thomas, who is the director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank and Professor of Molecular Pathology at Imperial College London. Jerry lives in Buckinghamshire with her husband Peter and two Jack Russell dogs who are out for a walk at the moment. Welcome, Jerry, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Andrew. Jerry, you grew up in rugby and then you moved to Leicestershire, I think, after your mum died. Um, tell us what you were like as a, as a youngster at school. Quite difficult, I think, quite challenging. Um, I was well known in school for, for challenging authority and sort of saying, well, why are we doing that? Give me the reasons for it. Um, so I think I think I was marked out for as very early on as somebody who would not toe the line unless she was really happy that it was the right thing to do. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of my my character formation came from was being in all girls school and not being not being scared to, to speak up but also being the only one who did three science A-levels. Yeah, it was not encouraged when I was young that, uh, that a woman would go into science. And if you did physics, you were gonna be an engineer. There was nothing else you could do with physics as far as the, the careers teachers were concerned. And of course I wanted to do three sciences and, and going to medicine. Um, and I thought that was a bit strange, which is really daft when you think about it now, but actually, you know, it really was a time when women were not designed to be scientists, really. Were there any teachers that you sort of, that, that particularly responded to your questioning attitude and challenging behaviours at all? I think most, most of them found me, me terrible. Um, I mean, my science teachers were, were pretty good. Um, I think that's because of the nature of being a scientist, you will question things. Um, and I think some of the older female teachers had also recognised that, that there was somebody here who was a little bit different. Um, but I, I found school pretty hard probably because you didn't go along with the crowd and go with the flow but you were sort of sometimes you can feel like you're swimming against it can't you but you've got to be true to who you are as well haven't you yeah it was a school that where you're expected to conform to the what they regard as what a, what a woman should do it's an all-girls grammar school and it was it was very much this is what women do don't break the mold uh, which is a bit surprising as you know many of the teachers had actually gone through the war lost husbands and were quite independent but they seemed to think teaching was okay but you know hard science Mm, not not for women well well done for breaking that mold so you did your three science at a levels what happened next i then failed spectacularly to get into medical school um and i it, ironically i went through clearing and my application was lost through clearing so i i managed not to do medicine twice um which you know actually probably was a blessing in disguise but at the time i was really really distraught and thought, well, I don't want to live at home any longer. I've got to get out of here. Um, and so I went through clearing and got a place in Bath to do pharmacology, uh, which was probably the best thing that I could have done. And ironically, my husband, now husband, was 
in the queue behind me registering. So that's where I met him, literally on the first day at university. Well, it makes two of us because I failed my A-levels and got into university through clearing, not to do physics as I'd planned, uh, but they offered me metallurgy which my dad said, how can you do that? You can't even spell it. But it was the best thing that ever happened. I couldn't have done the physics. The, the maths and, and, and all that in the physics would have been too much. And material science engineering, basically, is what it is, was just a perfect fit. So it's interesting how those sort of little things work out, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's like for me, I mean, my interests were, were biology and chemistry, which fits pharmacology beautifully. The physics I've come to later because I've had to understand that for talking about radiation. But I, ironically, at that age, physics was definitely not my best subject, probably because of the maths angle as well. My maths is, is not brilliant. So how did you find the transition from school into university? Because at school, you'd been questioning things and found that challenging. Did you find the university environment suited you a bit better? or In some cases, yes. I mean, I, I remember I didn't really learn from being in school and I still challenged things at university. Um, you know, I was involved in a wholesale review of the course in my final year because quite a few of us felt that the course was not offering what we needed. We'd been on industrial placement, we'd seen the real world, we wanted to change it. So I, I still was the same sort of character, um, but actually that got me quite a lot more respect at university. And I remember one of my lecturers um, being absolutely distraught because I got engaged just before our final exams. And don't get married, it'll stop you having a career in research. And at that time, I had got no intention of going into research. I was going to get married, have kids, look after my husband. And, and then, you know, got written by, bitten by the research bug and that was it. But I didn't think I was particularly good. I got a, I got a high 2-1, two, two, two but, you know, I still didn't think I was that good. It's fascinating, isn't it? Those sort of perspectives that come, come at you, which, which sort of make you sit back and think, you know. Um, so you did stay on and do a PhD? Not initially. I moved down to South Wales because my husband was doing teacher training. Um, and so we were getting married the sort of summer after we graduated. So we moved to Cardiff and I, I initially got a job in selling um, advertising, which I hated, absolutely hated. Uh, but it brought in the money. So I worked in an office and, and hated it for about six months until I was managed to get a technical post um, at the University of Wales Hospital in, in Cardiff, um, which was the Welsh National Medical School at the time. Uh, I got in there and was a technician for several years until my boss turned around and said, well, why don't you do a PhD? So I did. But it, it took me quite a long while, I think partly because he thought that once I got my PhD, I might leave him. So I found that I ended up doing twice as much work as I actually needed for my PhD. My PhD could have been two volumes, you know, big because there was so much work that had gone into that. But I, I just got bent by the research bug at that point and, and really <clears throat> decided that that was going to be where I was going to go. We were much more of a rarity, I think, in those days in having degrees and experience. And I'd, I'd spent a year working in Switzerland, which I loved, absolutely loved. Best thing I ever did was spend a year abroad. So I worked for Sandoz. My father was um, a drug rep for Sandoz. Um, uh, uh, well, Sandoz as it was now, Novartis as it, as it now is. And um, I was lucky to be able to spend the, well, I spent, went three for three months at the end of my first year as part of um, an employee sort of children's training scheme worked in the dye section, but made friends with a, um, a girl who was doing pharmacology who was working in the drug section. And it was dead easy for me. I just set my, my dyes up and then I'd have nothing to do for three hours. So I used to go over to the other building and talk to the pharmacologist. And her boss said, 
you have a year out next year. Do you want to come here? So I, I got a year in Switzerland working in Sandoz just as they were developing cyclosporin and things like that. So it was, it was really, really fascinating. But I was working on asthma then. I wasn't working on, on cancer. No, but it was still in the sort of researchy type environment, I guess. And I'm going to ask you, where did the bug come from? And perhaps that was it. I think that was that was really it. I got interested then and I, I did think about doing a PhD in asthma. Um, but once I started working on cancer, that was it. As far as I was concerned, that, that's really what I wanted to do. Um, but it was it, it really taught me so much about myself. It taught me so much about how you view your country, because it was at the time of the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland and all that. So you could see how the press reported it. And I learned German while I was there. So I could see how the press were reporting it there. And I became interested, and you'll know that's where I've gone since, in misrepresentation in the press of, of ideas and things like that. And I think that's where that came from. So then you, you did come back to do uh, your PhD. Um, was that linked into cancer? Yeah, my PhD was on clonality of thyroid tumours. At the time, there was a lot of discussion around um, non-genotoxic carcinogenesis. So, so things that these are, they don't affect the DNA, but they promote cancer growth. And um, an awful lot of, um, you know, some pesticides and things like that that were being used were coming up in toxicological screens as things that produce thyroid tumors because they increased the amount of TSH that was produced and they stimulated the thyroid to grow. And the question was, are these real tumors? In other words, are they clonal in their nature? And do they have any relevance to man or actually uh, ironically, as you'll know where all this comes from, are we looking at things that really aren't relevant at the doses that man receives? Uh, and so that that's where I mean, we proved they were clonal. We used a, a mouse model, um, which involved mutation, which then got me interested in looking at mutations and molecular um, things. As Of course, at that time, we were still reading DNA off a gel with a ruler and writing ACTG. We didn't have any of the fancy systems we've now got, which when you tell students now, sort of look at you and say, okay, 1880s was it? You know, no, 1980s, 1990s. But you know, it then, it, it, I then really, really got the bug of wanting to understand why these things develop. And I was always more interested when I did pharmacology with the toxicology what do you think it is about the, the cancer as the focus for your research? Is it because you find it fascinating or is it because of the wider sort of public good of solving those big challenges? What's the, what's the big motivation, do you think? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I deliberately steered clear of leukaemia because that, well, that was what my mother died of. So I knew I wasn't going to go anywhere near Hemonk because uh, it was too close. But, but cancer fascinated me simply because you, you're looking at a system that's become perturbed and you're assuming that what you see in terms of the molecular changes is necessarily the driver, where it actually may not be. And then, of course, then you go into the whole things like heterogeneity within cancer and, and how you escape from drug regulation. So it tied back to, to pharmacology. So it sort of encompassed everything I really wanted to do. Um, and I think it was just the fascination of here's something that we have in our environment that seems to be causing a problem in animal studies. But is that really relevant to man? And I think it was that trying to work out, question the, the doctrine that if I see it in an animal study, because I think at that period, we did tend to rely far more on results from animal studies because we didn't have the, 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 you know, the things that we can now do with human tissue. And it was, it was the idea of, is this really relevant? 
Again, it was that questioning thing of, you know, this is the accepted dogma. No, I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to look for something else. So you, you carried on with research and then you, you moved, you spent some time at, at Cambridge and then back to Swansea University. Um, tell us about how you balanced, you know, what you and your husband were doing with your career moves and all of that sort of thing. Because that's been a bit of a feature, hasn't it, in your journey? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was difficult um, when we moved from Cambridge. My husband is Welsh and really, I mean, you can take the boy from the valleys, but not the valley from the boy, as I always say. And he really wanted to stay in Wales. Um, but it was, it just, there wasn't enough there for me. And my boss was coming up to retirement. He was not offered anything to keep him going. And he was never going to be one of those people who's going to give up. And he um, got a job in Cambridge as professor of pathology in Cambridge. And it was just as things were starting to happen with Chernobyl. And um, so I thought, do I stay here or do I go? And I was actually looking to move out of Wales. I, I looked at a job in GSK, for example, in the toxicology section there. And I couldn't persuade my husband to go for that because the salary he didn't think would compensate us because Cambridge was quite expensive, Cardiff wasn't. Uh, and in the end, I moved for a, um, <laughs> a job that didn't pay quite so well in Cambridge. Um, but um, but it, it, and it was just as we were starting to have children as well. So there was an awful lot of things going on then. We moved to Cambridge. Um, he was able to get a, a, a good job teaching. Uh, we lived in a nice village, found a lovely childminder. I actually never stopped working. I was, <laughs> I was <laughs> I've never, my kids have never let me forget this but I was literally working on a grant as they took me down to have, um, to have my um, cesarean section with the second child. And I interviewed somebody two days after <laughs> by being wheeled to the hospital because the hospital and the lab are in the same place. So I, I had my kids in the Rosie and I was actually put in a wheelchair and wheeled across to my lab to interview somebody. And they've never really forgiven me for that. That's one thing. I was just writing something today, actually, about the difference between that I've experienced between people who work in industry and the people who work in academia. And my observation is, if you're an academic, it's your hobby, it's your life. And actually, often they don't you, you don't switch off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think as I've got older, I've realized how bad I was. I mean, my daughter will tell you one story of me writing a grant application with her asleep under the table on her birthday because her father had, was doing something else. So I took her into work with me and I said, look, just lie down there. You'll be fine. And I look back and with horror on some of the things that I did. But it meant so much to me. It was all of me at that point. Um, and I think as I've got older, I've realised that's probably not the best life work balance you could have had. Um, but I don't regret it because I wouldn't have got where I am and I wouldn't have had the influence that I've had if I hadn't have put in those hours. You have to work really hard. And at my time, if, as you, if you were a woman, you had to work really hard because there wasn't such a thing as equality. Um, and it's still hard now, but it was even harder then. It is. You know, an, an academic career is tough. And as you say, you know, uh, and if, you, if you're a woman or different, it's tougher. Um, but you did put in the hours. So you mentioned Chernobyl happening earlier. So just talk us through how did that then affect your career journey? My boss was the eminent pathologist, thyroid pathologist in Europe at the time. 
Um, and he was asked to go out uh, in 1990, 1992, with um, a colleague from Italy who was the preeminent endocrinologist in Europe at the time, to, to go and find out whether the, this rumour about thyroid cancer was true. And I remember him coming back and being visibly shaken. He had, I mean, childhood cancer, thyroid cancer is very rare. Um, and he, you know, you, you see a few, I used to get dragged up to the wards if there was somebody interesting on the wards, um, but it was, it, it's so rare normally. He came back and he said they were queuing round the corner to see him and this endocrinologist, because obviously it was believed that people from outside the country would be better able to help them. Uh, and he was shocked. And I remember one of the first, I think it was about 92, we had our first set of thyroid cancers come over with, one of the, with a pathologist from there. And I remember clerking in these and the dates of the operation, there were several operations on the same day. And this is before the, the very large rise that we saw. And you, you just think, I can't believe this. I mean, this, this kid is only, you know, 10. And there's another one who's 11 and it's all in the same day. And that's when it really hit me. This was, this was something that was real. Uh, and so for me, the first question was, okay, this has been caused by radiation. Are these cancers any different from ones that would arise from another mechanism? And that's what I've spent most of my career looking at. And I'm pleased to say there should be a paper coming out in the spring that actually says the drivers for these cancers are the same, which means that you treat them the same, which I think is really important because this sort of cancer you can treat very effectively and has a very low mortality rate. Again, you, you move back to Swansea and, I, and, and you became the scientific director of the Wales Cancer Bank. Um, tell us a little bit about what that means, because you're also the director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank. So can you just explain what that what that is? When we were starting to realise there was something going on in Chernobyl, I, I sort of realised that there was going to be an issue. We were dealing with countries that were very poor that were very keen to attract anybody who could give them any money because they really were. I mean, it was just as the Soviet Union was disintegrating. It was a total nightmare for the people out there. And I had heard rumours that, you know, tumours were being cut up and given to different groups and they're not knowing. And I thought, well, the way to make sure that we do this properly is, is to provide a bank to make sure that the collection of material is ethical, um, that the patients have been consented, that the material is properly documented, that we have a consensus diagnosis for it, that it's, it's curated properly. Because we were just at that point where science, biological science was starting to explode. And all of these things like whole genome sequencing, although not possible then you could see that the, the human genome had been sequenced, that things could really snowball from here. So I thought we should never ever have another opportunity like this because there should never be an accident like Chernobyl. We have to make sure we conserve this so we can learn as much as we possibly can. And I also knew that if it was iodine that was causing the issues, we would see a dramatic drop in childhood thyroid cancer as the iodine went from the environment. And so therefore, if you want to do a study, and this is what I learned from doing all my toxicology work and my animal work, you have to have controls. You can't take an adult population and say, well, the molecular biology is this in the adult, therefore it must be the same in the child. You do age and sex match studies in animals and you should do it in humans too, but the problem is always getting hold of the right material to do that. So I thought, here's a great opportunity to set something up. And it was a nightmare to set up. You can imagine the politics. But we, we eventually got the money to set it up and we launched it in 2000, 
we started collecting material in 1998 and launched it in 2000. Um, and at that point, I was starting to think I need to move out and branch off and, and do something on my own. Um, I hadn't got a proper contract with Cambridge. I was living off two month contracts, if you can imagine that, because um, the money was difficult to find for all of this. And so um, my friend who I did my PhD with had gone to work in Swansea as a pathologist there. And he said, Swansea's opening a medical school. I think you should come back. Um, and at, at that point, of course, my, I, had, I had small children. My husband was delighted to be going home. I love Swansea, I love South Wales. And I thought, this is the opportunity. Um, but again, my questioning of how things didn't got me into trouble in Swansea. Um, and I, and in the end, I thought, I can't see a future for, for me here. But the Wales Cancer Bank was, they were talking about it uh, with people I knew having been in Cardiff. Um, and um, they were talking about it, getting it going. And I sort of stepped back and thought, well, because there's a big rivalry between Cardiff and Swansea. And I thought, <laughs> I can see what's going to happen. I'll do all the work. Cardiff will take all the credit. Not going to go there. So I sort of stepped back a bit from that um, and then in the end got told by one of the oncologists, for God's sake, you really know how to set this up, get in here and set it up. And that's where we started. So I used what I learned from setting up the Chernobyl Tissue Bank to use in the Wales Cancer Bank. Um, but one of the reasons I'd also moved down to Swansea is that the, the person I went to work with there, who sent me a beautiful email saying, um, I've looked at your CV, I've no idea what we've got in common, but I'm sure we'll find something and is now one of my best friends. Um, he was a breast cancer um, oncologist. And one of the things we were concerned about with the release of iodine is the breast also contains a mechanism for uptake of iodine, although it doesn't store it uh, while it's lactating. And was there going to be an increase in breast cancer that was going to come after the initial increase in thyroid cancer? So I wanted to know more about breast as well. So from that point of view, it was a perfect fit. And then getting down there and finding they got the money for the Wales Cancer Bank, but didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I then started working with people in Cardiff and with Alison Parry Jones, who, who now directs the bank down there um, to set this up. Um, so I set up another tissue bank. It's really interesting, isn't it? How, how you, your career can go through, you know, quite a difficult time. You mentioned those sort of two monthly contracts you were sort of staying on in Cambridge for, and yet, the experience that you're building up there has its moment, doesn't it? You know, the moment comes along and, and somehow it's almost like you've been prepared for this moment. And it's the, it's that next step where suddenly things take off and that's what was happening. Yeah. And then the move from Swansea was probably the most difficult because clearly kids were, were already, you know, they were at school age. So my daughter was in senior school, my, um, my son was just about to, to go up into senior school. They love being in Wales. Who wouldn't? I mean, pick your beach, basically, in Swansea. Um, and my husband wasn't keen to move up to London because of the price difference in the house, etc. So for a while, we lived, we lived apart. I saw them at weekends, which was really, really hard. I maintained a two-day-a-week contract in Cardiff. Um, but actually spent most of my time working up in London, although I could have been working on stuff for Cardiff in those two days. Um, and I came up here to do research <laughs> and then got talking to somebody about the tissue bank in Imperial. And then the person who was running it said, oh, by the way, I'm, um, I'm gonna retire. And I thought, oh no, I can see what's gonna happen. 
And it did. So I ended up running the Imperial College Healthcare Tissue Bank, which I expanded quite extensively and was one of the biggest HDA regulated tissue banks by the time I left it in, in the UK. So it was, it was an important step on your academic career to move to Imperial by the sound of things. Yeah, I mean, it, it gave me much more scope for research. Uh, you, you have your mind blown when you come somewhere like Imperial because people are so innovative, they're doing so much, there's so much cross-disciplinary working um, and being able to put the tissue bank in place so that it was easier for the engineers to get human samples and things like that, I, I really thought was, was a great idea. And I mean, people will come up with, I'm doing this operation and I, um, I'm, I, you know, you get this sort of fluid. Can I collect that? And I'm thinking, oh, I never thought of that one. So I have to keep going back to ethics as well to change the sort of the, the format, the samples we could collect because they're just so innovative. I mean, it, it never stopped. I went through about eight or nine different versions of ethics simply because people came up with new ideas. It's helpful that you've got this sort of wide driver in you because you can ask the question why and why not. And so you keep moving and developing, you know, you know, the, all of that thinking. So I'm going to ask you about communication of science, because that's become a big feature of, of what you do, you know, through radio, TV, news, whatever. And particularly uh, in Japan um, with the Fukushima nuclear incident and so on. So, so how did that start to develop and how have you found that world of public communications? Well, it was Fukushima. I mean, that's where I first met you, as you well know. Um, literally, my I, my kids were watching the, the television and called me through and said, mum, 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 there's been a nuclear accident. And um, I said, no, yeah, come on, you know, it's nothing. It, 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 it'll go away. And the next thing I knew, I had a phone call from my line manager who said, Sky, need to speak to somebody about radiation. You're bad. Get on with it. That was my media training. So my first interview was with, with Sky. And then, as you well know, it went mad. Everybody wanted to speak to us. Uh, and that's when I really understood how little I understood about nuclear power. And boy, was it a steep learning curve. But it was really good because uh, you know, there was a bunch of us who met in green rooms, all from different disciplines. We would never have met each other. I didn't even know that Imperial had a big nuclear engineering department because they're based on a different site from where I was. And all of a sudden this sort of opened up um, and you didn't have time to be nervous. You didn't have time to think. You had to go in and you had to perform. But fortunately for me, there was always somebody with me who knew the physics and so could talk on that, and, and, but, but didn't know anything about the health. So we were always very, very complimentary. And it, was, it opened my eyes to something that I never thought I'd do because I'm not, I am not that sort of person. I, I don't go out and talk about things. I used to get really nervous about giving talks and things like that. And all of a sudden, you realize that you're actually getting through to people and making people understand and making people less frightened. And that for me was great. It was one of those situations where you, you just knew what the right thing was to do. Because if it wasn't you stepping up and answering the difficult questions, it might be somebody else. And you were invited out to Japan as well. I'd been working with the Japanese since 2000 because one of my sponsors for the Chernobyl Tissue Bank is the Japanese. And they were very, you know, they, they were very get up and go about sorting out um, thyroid screening, etc. So I'd actually been working with most of the major players in radiation research in, in Japan, in human radiation research in Japan for some time. And about six months after the accident, um, I was approached by Professor Niwa, who now runs the uh, RERF, 
who I'd known for many, many years, and he said, will you come to Japan? And I said, but I don't speak Japanese. Um, and, you know, you're experts. I'm just, you know, somebody who knows a little bit about this, but you're, yeah. No, 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 you don't understand. A woman and a foreigner who can come out and talk like you can will really help us because we can't do that. Nobody will believe what we're saying. And I'm going, but, but you know far more than I do. He said, yes, but you will be really influential. So I said, well, if you think it's going to help, because I'd been jumping up and down saying this is really unfair treatment of the Japanese people. You're just making them scared. Stop it. And my husband said, oh, for God's sake, you know, do something. This is your opportunity. So I went out to Japan and I've lost count of the number of times I've been to Japan. I think I've been round the power station five times. And I was just shocked at how scared people were um, and the fact that they didn't feel they were getting the information. And there was so much misinformation around at the time that it was really important for somebody to counteract that. But you pay a price for that, as you well know. Um, if As soon as you become a public advocate of nuclear power, as they see you, you get bricks thrown at you. Um, and there has been some fairly unpleasant incidences, but I don't regret any of it. No, because it's the right thing to do. And as you say, you know, what you're doing is you're developing the science, the data, the understanding. And, you know, that gives a strong foundation for the best advice and the best information that we can communicate. Yeah, I mean, my pet hate is people who misuse science. Uh, you know, science is there to help us get through life. And people who flagrantly misuse scientific facts or misinterpret scientific facts really annoy me. Because if you can't believe in science, what can you believe in? You have to have the evidence and you should always have the evidence when you make a statement to back it up. And it has to be good evidence. What's your sort of advice to people who want to advise or help influence in a particular area? Um, how does one go about it? I think, you know, if, if you if you ask somebody who's already doing it, maybe you'll get an introduction that way. Um, it all happened by accident for me. Uh, and I'm still asked to do things. And I think, well, where did that come from? Um, but I think if you can shadow somebody, I mean, some, some of the advisory panels um, offer the ability for somebody to come along as an observer. You, you have to understand how these things work. And I think that's a very steep learning curve as well, because it ain't like academia. You really do have to learn that, that there are axes to grind in various places. There are different agendas that you have to take account of. Um, and you have to become much more politically aware than most scientists would like to be. Um, it, is, it is a challenge doing it, but it is, it's very rewarding. But it can also be, you feel sometimes if you're just bashing your head against a brick wall. And I think my training of having to work with the NHS for tissue collection probably put me in good stead for that. <laughs> I always think that it's it's not just communicating a perspective and the, and the facts, you know, it's also putting yourself in the other person's shoes and thinking what is important for them. And if I share something in one way or another way, how will they receive that? Yeah. And I was I, mean, I was anti-nuclear. And so I started working on Chernobyl and it was it was the realisation of hang on, this is not what I thought it was going to be when we started doing all the research and finding out that thyroid cancer was really the only thing that came out of it, apart from making people really scared, which has an impact on health. That then made me think, and, and I would never have spoken to green groups and things like that until I was literally thrown in it by Robin Grimes. He sort of said, George Monbiner needs somebody to speak to. 
And so I started talking to a lot of green groups and, and sort of saying to them, well, well, you know, why do you think that way? Should we talk about the evidence? And these guys are intelligent. There is nothing wrong with their intelligence. They're intelligent as you and I. They just haven't had access to the right information. And we found that with the, the BBC when we were working with them. A lot of the journalists said, well, we didn't know how to get hold of you. And so they went with the people that they knew from before they could get hold of. And so it just shows that if you if you hide in your lab, you're not really going to be able to use what you learn as science to its maximum advantage. That's great advice. So I'm going to take you back to when you were at school in Leicestershire, slightly swimming against the tide, wanting to do your three sciences for A-levels and so on, and being the only girl doing that. Um, if you could give her one piece of advice to set her on her journey what would it be i think it would be stick up for what you know what you can evidence base don't be scared to challenge authority but recognize it's not going to get you liked you'll have to develop a very thick skin um, but if it, if you really believe in something and you have the evidence to prove that you're right uh, with all the caveats that we have around uncertainties in science, if you, if you really have something that you want to bring home, stick at it, you'll get there in the end, but don't expect an easy ride because it won't be easy, especially if you have a challenging character. You will always doubt yourself. And the day you stop doubting yourself is the day that you should shut up because that means that, that you have not been able to look around and think, well, am I really right about this? Do I need more evidence? Where can I find that evidence? So. You will always, you will always in, a, in a part of your brain, it will be going, are you sure about this? And as long as you've got that going, you'll be able to represent the science that you're talking about properly. Yes, it helps you be objective, doesn't it? Not, not emotionally tied to a particular view. Yeah, yeah. Do, do be afraid to admit you're wrong, or as I like to say, less right. Because in time, we're not wrong, we're just less right because we've got more evidence now. That's really good advice. And, and I mean, it's really good that, you know, you today are still asking the same question and being who you're made to be. So, Jerry, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Andrew. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.